0: Good morning, White River Watershed uh, Region for Baxter Regional Hometown Clinic Service Area. This is Dr. Eric Span on the What's Up Doc Podcast with your bleeding edge regional update for COVID-19. So over the last 24 hours, Stone County has had five cases of coronavirus, but our 14-day case load has decreased to about 39% of the total pandemic load. We have 19 active cases, 54 of 74 total cases recovered, and we've not had a death in over a month with one total. Izard County has had a mild outbreak uh, at a local business there, and I recently spoke to their county uh, medical director. And with 13 active cases, they have recovered 44 of 58 with one total death still over a month ago. And they have had five new cases in the last 24 hours, and about 14 new cases over the last three to four days. Baxter County is doing well with only about a fourth of its cases over the last 14 days for the whole pandemic. And of it's 76 total cases, they only have 14 active cases with a regional percentage uh, high of 62 out of 76 cases. They've still had no deaths. Fulton County has had a mild outbreak uh, that's still sustained, with 15 of 44 cases still active, 29 cases recovered, and over the last 14 days, they've had about 50 percent of their entire uh, burden for the entire pandemic. Shark County is down to about 20 percent of its total pandemic cases over the last two weeks, with three cases over the last 24 hours. They have recovered 100 of 117 cases. Independence County's totals were not available at the time of recording, but they are having a slight decrease, and now their 14-day case total over the last pandemic uh, 19 weeks is down to 47%, which is a significant decrease. So, in our region, we have 381 of our 937 cases are about 41% over the last 14 days. Most of those are from Independence County, but they're getting better. We have recovered 651 of 937 cases. Now, in the region, our deaths are stayed at nine uh, with one new death in Independence County over the last uh, several days. But in the region, our non-COVID deaths over the last 19 weeks stand at about 520 So you can see the disparity between the usual death rates and the COVID death rates. In the state of Arkansas, we've had 573 deaths over the course of the pandemic. And you'll hear more about Arkansas in our summary. We have about 50,000 cases reported. And in our entire state over the last 19 weeks, we've had somewhere around 10,900 deaths in the entire state from the usual or from natural causes that we would expect based on past years. This means that of 573 deaths out of 10,900, that only one out of 20 deaths in Arkansas for the last nearly five months is from COVID, and that 95% of our deaths are from the usual, either natural or accidental causes. We have a trend in the region that shows our hospital Bed availability is up a bit to about 40 percent. Our ICU bed availability is tracking that. I was thankful to hear that our regional hospitals have made special beds available for COVID cases. Our ventilator capacity availability is above 90 percent. And Arkansas remains as a whole with about 20 percent of our citizens tested across the board. Independence County has decreased to about 70 percent of the active cases in the region. All the other counties are less than 20 active cases each. So in summary, for the state of Arkansas, according to Governor Hutchinson today, all trends including deaths, ICU bed stays, hospitalizations, daily cases, seven-day average, and percent positivity are all improved over the last week. We've improved slightly over the last 24 hours, but that may be because Independence County's numbers are not fully in yet. One note about children is this was brought up in the governor's report today. According to a recent study that I picked up from one of the journals, COVID numbers and positivity are down approximately 50% in all age groups and children in Arkansas over the last two to four weeks. Now, this will likely not hold with most physicians and healthcare professionals as well as uh, educators and administrators expecting that three or four weeks into the school year we'll probably have to shut down for a period of time. But we've got to give it a try. These kids need to be back in school, and I think that that's the only way we're going to know. So for some perspective in the region, Our first local case in the region that I'm personally aware of or have anything to do with has died from fear over COVID. We have a patient in our area that I'm aware of by second hand who stayed at home with chest pain symptoms because they were afraid to go to the emergency room for that chest pain, and they wound up being found deceased at home from a heart attack the following day. This is tragic and avoidable, and just as a, a further perspective, if you consider That in the region, we have had about 520 deaths in this six-county region over the last 19 weeks from usual or natural causes. In our region, if you know, we only have nine deaths, as I reported above, that are known at this time in our entire region. I'm aware of personally and or anecdotally from other physicians, emergency room reports and other reports that I'm aware of or involved in that we've lost 10 to 20 lives in our six-county region due to people who were short of breath, had chest pain, neurological or other cardiovascular or pulmonary symptoms and would not go to the hospital for fear of being infected by coronavirus. So now, folks, we are having more people in our region die from the fear of COVID than COVID is actually killing. So to the cutting-edge research... The American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association of America reported this week that the cases in children in the United States are rising, and I read and quote, from July the 9th to August 6th, nearly 180,000 children were newly diagnosed with the COVID-19 virus, according to these updated figures. That represents, according to them, a 90% increase over four weeks. Children accounted for 9% of all U.S. cases reported through August the 6th. They state that among infected children, 0.3 to 8.9 percent in various studies and locations from 20 states and New York City were hospitalized. In the 44 states in New York City that report mortality data, they state that 0.0 to 0.4 percent of all COVID-19 deaths in 19 states were children's. Nineteen states of those 44 reported zero child deaths. In all states, they say, state that 0.0 to 0.5% of all child COVID cases resulted in death, and this is not respective of their chronic ill state before or their previous health state before they contracted coronavirus. Now, note, as of May in New York, without reporting that same chronic health status of these children, New York state reported 15,000 deaths approximately. And they lost only nine children. This is less than one in 1,650 deaths in the state were those of children. Now, the article goes on to state, what we do know from the data is that children's deaths remain much lower than in older age groups. And I would say that based on the statistics above, that 0.06% of deaths are in children And as I've quoted before, I've quoted to you before that if you take the 50 million children in the United States that attend public school and one million of those children got coronavirus, according to the current death rates, you would lose barely more than 200 children, which would be tragic. But usually we lose about 150 children a year in bus accidents on the way to school or home from school, and we lose approximately 2,500 children a year to car accidents going to or coming home from school. And each year we lose 550 children to influenza or other respiratory diseases. So again, there's very little perspective in the media that sensationalizes all of these data. The AAFP goes on to state, but as case counts rise across the board, it is likely to impact more children with severe illnesses as the total numbers rise. And this is common sense. So, just realize that, yes, more children have gotten the virus nationally, but I just showed you from the reports from the Children's Hospital in Arkansas that all of our children's rates and all of the severity accordingly are going down, as well as the number of cases that we test that are positive of the total. So consider that. And then we move on to the Russian vaccine approval. I've been asked about this several times today. Now I am talking about your 50 50- and what intensive care unit, babies? So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide and say, give it to me straight, doctor, I can take it. Yes, Russian health officials have approved a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2, and that vaccine takes two strains of adenovirus, which is a cold virus, um, and they sped it through early uh, primate and human trials with apparent success. And the New York Times reports. That it has not been studied in phase three trials. The Russian Health Agency states that they will begin vaccinating healthcare workers and teachers this month, and they plan to start a broader vaccination program in the fall. Now, for us in the United States, the FDA states that the SARS CoV 2 vaccine must show a 50% greater effective protectivity than the placebo to gain any approval. If you look at any group of people and they receive an injection because of the positivity of the hope, And the reassurance of having been vaccinated, their white blood cells will work better and produce better antibodies and the placebo effect I've dealt with previously. But we have very specific cutoffs. Dr. Fauci uh, just yesterday commented to the National Geographic in an interview. He says, I hope that the Russians have actually definitively proven that the vaccine is safe and effective. He told Deborah Roberts, the event moderator. She's also an ABC News correspondent. He says, I seriously doubt that they've done that. Three vaccine candidates in the U.S. are in late-stage clinical trials with a fourth on the way. The FDA has stated that it will only approve a vaccine with at least a 50% efficacy. In other words, that one out of two doses must protect patients better at that rate than placebo did. And these uh, vaccines so far surely have that percentage uh, equaled or bettered. He states that we have a half a dozen or more vaccines, so if we wanted to take the chance of hurting a lot of people or giving them something that doesn't work, we could start doing this, you know, next week if we wanted to, but that's not the way it works, and he's absolutely right. Brilliance. That's all I can say. Sheer unadulterated brilliance. What I would state is if you trust Vladimir Putin to be honest about anything, uh, I've got some land I want to sell you down in Louisiana. Um, so, hydroxychloroquine, I haven't talked about this in a couple of weeks. Uh, I have, uh, and I've not shared this with our audience, but I've been giving a version of hydroxychloroquine to all the people that go overseas with me to Tana Island, where we have the worst malaria on the face of planet Earth. I can't even treat people with hydroxychloroquine because all the malaria there is resistant to it. So we have to use a drug called mefloquine. Mefloquine, my wife and I, our children, and all of the, the several hundred people that we've taken to Tana Island since 1997 have needed to take mefloquine to go with me or I would not take them. And what's interesting is for the last 21 years, my precautions to them were these, that if they had significant psychiatric depressive or cardiac diseases, including arrhythmias, that I would take them without the mefloquine because it was risky. Now, remember, we're talking about a hydroxychloroquine-like drug. So a hydroxychloroquine review shows that 33 studies from 1964 to 2020, on average, show a 7 to 12% risk of significant psychiatric adverse events, most commonly psychosis and manic or bipolar flare-ups. They note that some cases do not resolve after discontinuation, and this is an FDA adverse events reporting system study by Dr. Sato this year in in June. 4,336 case reports with exposure to chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine reported um, PAEs, or or adverse uh, psychiatric events, in 520 patients out of the 4,336 studied. so that's about 12%. Exposure to chloroquine was associated with a statistically significant high report uh, of amnesia, delirium, hallucinations, depression, and loss of consciousness, the authors state. Now, they also state that there are confounding factors in evaluating this, such as malaria or other medical conditions that adversely affect the drugs' effects on the patients and that the illnesses themselves, such as COVID, have some neurological or neuropsychiatric effects. What I wanted to share with you was that if you look at the practices that we had well before COVID, we were warning our patients about all of these side effects uh, up to 30 years ago, and these have been widely known. So just remember, we're not talking to you about things on a political basis or what we think from uh, news reports. We're using the actual uh, monthly prescribing information, physician's desk reference, uh, the product insert that shows that it is very common that people who take uh, appropriate uh, therapeutic doses of chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, or mefloquine will have significant cardiac or even psychiatric symptoms. And it's reported recently that these psychiatric symptoms don't necessarily improve after these drugs are out of the system. On to face masks again. There's a new study this week that deals with the filtration on inhalation. In other words, the protective effect of different masks On patients uh, who have fitted masks or non fitted masks. And this would, the filtration ability would be the masks ability to keep us from breathing in viral particles. So this is the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine publication just two days ago. And they state the question How effective are aerosol filtration efficiencies for fitted face mask alternatives used during the COVID 2019 pandemic? The findings are that in this quality improvement study of 29 fitted face mask alternatives, expired N95 respirators, in other words, used N95 masks that were refurbished with intact elastic bands and masks that had been subjected to either ethylene oxide or, hydroxygen or hydrogen peroxide sterilization, had unchanged fitted filtration efficiencies of more than 95%, which is excellent. And that's what performance the N95s are meant to have. That's why they're called N95s, because they filter microscopic particles down to the micron size in in, in that percentage of cases. Now, when they gave wrong-sized fitted masks, it decreased between 90 and 95% still a good filter even if it wasn't a good fit they state as a group surgical and procedure masks had lower ffe's or filtration equivalents relative to n95s with masks secured with elastic ear loops showing the lowest performance and i'm guessing that the straps that we tie like when we're delivering babies or doing surgery because they're fitted a little bit better and not as loose or so more comfortable Uh, are not as good, but they still had a good performance. So the author's summary was that they stated, our meaning is that when new N95 respirators are unavailable, N95 respirators past their expiration date that had been sterilized, used N95 respirators, or other less common respirators can be acceptable alternatives. This is because of the low supply we have of N95s at this time and their significantly increased cost over the last several months. The next research study that interested me out of the week's gleaning was a study about the modeling uh, of the impact of school closures on COVID-19 incidents. And I'm going to warn you, this is how medical research can be misused, even by good journals, by authors that I feel have an agenda or are using statistics to misquote reality. So, uh, Dr. Sandra Nelson, M.D., et al., other authors involved showed that school closures in March might have averted 1.37 million cases over the 26 school days that were available in the year, and they state a decrease, uh, they estimate, of 40,600 deaths over the period of time. But the authors stating this in their um, main sentences then go on at the end of their study to state some things that undermine their very premise. And they state, that in a time series analysis, investigators assess the impact of these school closures, including the incidence and mortality associated with COVID-19, while adjusting to the extent possible for other factors, including stay-at-home orders, business closures, restaurant and bar closures, prohibitive, uh, prohibition of gatherings, the testing capacity, population density, age distribution, and social vulnerability, They state that they believe that a 62 percent decrease in incidence was achieved and as well as a decrease in mortality of approximately 58 percent. And their statistics are good and and their statistics show that if their thesis is correct, that this is much beyond the the chance effect or the chance bias affecting their results. But noted that these changes were largest in states that closed schools where the incidence of COVID was low at that time. And edit, the editorial group stated some, some things at the end that, that really seemed to go to the root. I cannot imagine that 40,000 deaths were prohibited or were prevented by the school closures. They do not state whether this was the children or the population at large. But listen to what the editors state. They acknowledge that school closures were enacted at around the same time that interventions such as stay-at-home orders and business closures were ordered, making it difficult to separate out the impact of school closures alone. Furthermore, the contribution that behavioral measures such as distance separation, hand hygiene, and mask usage The effect that they made in the transmission, they state, could not be assessed. The editors go on to say, given the multiple simultaneous interventions and behavior modifications, it remains difficult to tease out the impact of school closures alone. Further, their understanding of the role of children in the transmission continues to evolve, and it's unclear if the impact of school closures was attributable to reductions in children spreading the disease or to the curtailed contacts among adults and caregivers who stayed home with those children. So it always frustrates me when I get to the end of these articles and say, well, our findings, although we quoted all these statistics, really might have been due to all the effects at once and might not have been due to closing the schools at all. Oh, no! So we still don't know what effect school closings will have, other than we know when you put children together, you're going to have more disease. Along with the authors, I would say that balancing the profound harms of school closure on children's academic progress, social and emotional development, as well as mental health, that against the risk for contracting COVID, COVID-19 COVID uh, for students, educators, and their families, it remains uncertain as to what's more dangerous. So once again, they undermine their own study and their headline claim. So be careful. Even medical researchers are guilty of trying to state what they want to state at the front, but then backing it up kind of like, uh, many large uh, media outlets, when they make their retraction, if they were completely wrong, rather than being on the front page as their headline was, they put it in the small print at the bottom. Load up good. <laughs> Load up real good. Okay? Yeah. The The next article that was interesting was one that uh, was masks with exhalation valves or vents. About 25% of the people that come in my office have a mask on that's, uh, that's shaped correctly, And that's bought from a store, obviously, that has a vent in it, a little plastic disc that lets the uh, air out. Well, let me read to you what the CDC says, and I completely agree because the, the vent has an effect. The purpose of masks is to keep respiratory droplets from reaching others to aid with source control. However, masks with one-way valves or vents allow air to be exhaled through the hole in the material, which can result in expelled respiratory droplets that can reach others. This type of mask does not prevent the person wearing the mask from transmitting COVID-19 to others. Therefore, the CDC does not recommend using masks for source control if they have an exhalation valve or vent. So, folks, remember, if the valve allows air to go out without being filtered through the material... You've just defeated the purpose of wearing a mask. So after spending several hours this week with all the data, the literature, the statistics, finding some interesting facts and figures that I thought might interest you, that is the bleeding edge report from What's Up Doc for the region that we serve from Baxter Regional Hometown Clinics. I hope this has been useful to you and possibly even a little bit entertaining, and I look forward to seeing you again on Monday. Just as a personal note, uh, this is probably the last podcast for the weekend other than an interview I did with Pastor Bruce Betts of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, concerning racism uh, in our society right now that I'll be publishing on Saturday. But my son Caleb, who's 23, is getting married. Uh, thank you all for your well-wishing. Uh, I want to say thank you to those up in Baxter County who have uh, let me know that they listen and appreciate all the feedback I've gotten, the, uh, the suggestions for improvement. And I look forward to seeing you hopefully Monday, at least by noon, with an upload for our new statistics for next week. Thanks, and have a good weekend. <music>